Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is the prophet Isaiah and the book named for him, and probably by him, at least in part, and that is some of what we're going to be talking about today. Dad, as we were getting ready for this, well, actually, I'm the one who proposed it, and I realized that I have been using this podcast kind of as therapy, <laughs> theological and scriptural therapy, because, uh, well, I mean, in some cases, it's been it's been easy to love the books, like uh, Mark, which we started with early on, and Romans that we just did. I wouldn't say I understood it fully, uh, but I, I didn't dislike it. Um, I had already come to love Leviticus, and I was talking you into it, but I definitely didn't like Joshua, and you had to, I don't know if you fully talked me into it, but certainly my appreciation is greater. So now I have to make my confession about Isaiah. Like, how could anyone possibly dislike Isaiah? I wouldn't say I really disliked it. I just didn't see what the big deal was. Like, people just seem to be so enthused about Isaiah. And so... One of the reasons I wanted to do this episode is so that I would come to terms with why I was, let's say, lukewarm about Isaiah and try to overcome that. And I realized there are two major reasons for it. I'll take up the first now, and I think we'll get to the other one at the end of the episode. So here's the thing. To me, Isaiah was just emblematic of the most boring typology and fulfillment lectionary reading that I was raised on. Like, here's something that happens in the Old Testament, and here's how Jesus does it even better. And it just seemed like that's all you ever had. Like, first they said this, and now Jesus comes and does it. It was just like a children's sermon. Like, it was just too simplistic, and I didn't have any... I don't know. It just seemed like exactly the kind of relationship between Old and New Testament that I wanted to get away from. Um, Well, whether or not the lectionary handles that well, what I realized in doing some study for this um, episode is that I had the order exactly backwards, which should have been an obvious sort of thing. But in fact, the reason why Isaiah sounds so much like Jesus is because Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament writers all used Isaiah to make sense of what had happened to Jesus. So, of course, there is no New Testament at the time of Jesus or the early apostles, but what they have is the what we call the Old Testament, and especially Isaiah and the Psalms. Those were the two sources they went to to make sense of what actually Jesus did and then what happened to him. And as soon as I flipped that order around, suddenly I was like a great big duh, uh, but then Isaiah suddenly became luminous to me again. So um, that was a, a fast therapeutic session, but Maybe others can benefit from further discussion of Isaiah. Now that I'm, I'm back on. <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's a cute story about your personal disgust with the boring prediction fulfillment scheme that so many of us were indoctrinated in. There's a little bit of a backstory, Sarah, to this scheme, which I think will help people realize why it's so sterile and depressive. The idea that the Old Testament prophets were making predictions that could then be verified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from prediction to uh, fulfillment of the prediction is really very much an invention of later church history. As you're pointing out, it's it's the other way around in primitive Christianity. And this invention of later Christianity had an apologetic function. Why do you believe such outrageous things like born of a virgin and raised from the dead? 
about this obscure Jewish rabbi uh, of first century Palestine. How can you believe such absurd things? Well, because we have proof from prophecy. And so proof from prophecy became the apologetic tour de force by which to oppose enemies and convince them that Christians believe these absurd things because they were predicted, never realizing in the process that in in the process they'd reduce the gospel to an absurdity through this kind of apologetics. I can see the apologetic strategy is like the one piece of information nobody has is the future. <laughs> so if you can prove that in the past your people said this is going to happen in the future and then it really happened in the future like that, that is beyond all other forms of human knowledge and calculus. So it would seem to be a really like a, a clincher of an argument if you could pull that one off. Right. And it, of course, it doesn't persuade anybody who's not already persuaded uh, as Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew amply demonstrates. But that was the roots of a very oppressive use of this prediction fulfillment scheme in the so-called staged disputations with the Jews that uh, took place under the uh, Holy Roman Inquisition, particularly in Spain, where uh, every so often a bunch of poor Jews were rounded up and read all the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and then shown their fulfillment in the New Testament and then uh, challenged any rational person can see that this is the fulfillment of the scriptures. What's wrong with you people? You must be possessed by the devil, blinded by the devil, that you cannot see that Jesus fulfills the predictions. And that between the apologetic use within Christianity to to defend absurdity and the oppressive use of this by the Inquisition to uh, uh, badger Jews, uh, this whole scheme has a pretty, uh, pretty poor track record, I would say. Okay, well, good. I, I'm glad to know that I'm on on the right side by being disgusted by it without even um, knowing all that that background to it. There's one more theological implication I'd like to bring out. One of the better church fathers, Augustine, also holds to this prediction and fulfillment scheme, though Paula Fredrickson has argued that he's not nearly as hostile to Jews as some of the other church fathers. But in any case, what I wanted to say was Augustine has a philosophical reason for holding to prediction and fulfillment, namely his peculiar view of divine simplicity, such that to God in eternity, the future is already present. So it's a demonstration of God's deity that he can uh, predict the future, and then uh, we can see his predictions come true. So it's not just a demonstration of the truth of Christianity. For Augustine, it's a demonstration of the truth of God. Hmm. But you're no big fan of divine simplicity, so you must not be really thrilled with that line of thought. Well, I think that it raises some deep questions, but let's stick to Isaiah for today. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Time and God will save for the future. Well, what I have to say is, is in, in reading some good scholarship on Isaiah, it's it's helped me do what, well, like what Richard Hayes calls reading backwards, which is instead of starting with Isaiah and then trying to like concoct some kind of um, mythological figure who someday could 
fulfill everything to rather um, be in the the time of Jesus and the apostles and the early church who are coping with what they experience in Jesus, this wondrous teacher and healer who is rejected and ultimately crucified and then raised from the dead. And how do you make sense of this? How do you connect it with ideas about what it means to be Messiah or Savior or forgive sins or fresh start or receive the Holy Spirit or all these Gentiles coming in. And it's actually in that matrix, then looking to Isaiah for help, like what is what is going on here? What has happened? Um, so what I'd like to do to, to kind of um, send us off in this direction is to read um, something I, I took from a book called um, The Fifth Evangelist by John Sawyer, um, which is a study of the use of Isaiah in Christian preaching throughout the centuries. Actually, that was what really started to turn, turn the tide for me in favor of Isaiah. And what he does is he presents the gospel of Jesus drawn entirely from Isaiah. And I think this will really show why Isaiah was so essential to the early church. So let me just take a couple minutes to read it through. Here we go. And again, this is all quotations from Isaiah strung together. As you hear, listen to it, you'll be hearing a biography of Jesus. So, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, a rod out of the stem of Jesse. His name shall be called Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Key of David, the Christ. To us a child is born. The ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib. The Gentiles will come to your light and the kings to your rising. They will bring gold and incense. The idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence. Behold, my servant in whom my soul delights. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. By the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations, the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. Surely he has taken our infirmities and borne our sicknesses. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then shall the lame man leap like a heart. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. He shall be a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, but also a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel. He said, Go and tell this people, Hear indeed, but understand not. I will weep bitterly because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Say to the daughter of Zion, Your Savior comes. My house will be called a house of prayer for all people. My servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and there shall come up, up briars and thorns. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those that pluck out the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. From the sole of the feet, even to the head, there is no soundness but bruises and sores and bleeding wounds. He was numbered between the transgressors and made intercession for the transgressors. They made his grave with a rich man. His tomb will be glorious. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Behold, my servant shall understand, he shall be exalted and lifted up. He shall be high and lifted up. I will set a sign among them. I will send survivors to the nations, to the sea, to Africa and Lydia, to Italy and Greece, to islands afar off, to those who have not heard about me and have not seen my glory, and they will proclaim my glory to the nations. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God, right? <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> It is all just a string of citations from Isaiah gives you uh, 
in a nutshell, the whole gospel narrative. Yeah, so you can really see why they they turned to Isaiah to make sense again as you've often emphasized the the catastrophe of Jesus crucifixion and then the surprise of his resurrection there they had to l- turn somewhere to figure out what to do with it and Isaiah was one of their primary sources. Yeah, and that of course raises the question why Isaiah uh, and probably we'll have to uh, talk about some Isaiah texts that Jesus himself held dear and embraced as um, interpreting his own mission and ministry. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute, I suppose. Uh, But I would like to just make a mention here of Nils Dahl and Don Jewell, uh, who are the scholars uh, of my generation who really generated this insight of uh, John Sawyer and of Ben Witherington, the third and um, Reverend Childs, uh, all of these people were indebted to the argument Nils Dahl made originally, which was simply this, that the catastrophe of Jesus's crucifixion, the one thing that stands out in it is the placard Pontius Pilate had placed above his head, the king of the Jews. Of course, Pilate meant it as mockery. But in the light of the resurrection, the disciples of Christ said this was instead an apocalypse, a revelation. Here is the king of the Jews dying on the Roman stake. And so everything then depended on reading the story of Jesus backward and forward from this decisive identification. It is as the crucified one that he is the king of the Jews. What can this oxymoron, this contradiction in terms, possibly mean? And then Don Jewell, a student of Nils Dahl, wrote that book that you and I both benefited from so much, Messianic Exegesis, in which he demonstrated how the earliest Christians ransacked the scriptures to make sense of this paradox, the crucified king of the Jews. And that's how Isaiah emerged in their sight as the gospel, the fifth gospel, the gospel preached beforehand. Though it should really be like gospel, like 0.0, <laughs> like even, it's not the fifth, it's the it's before the first even in, in the way it's used. Right. Yeah, no, I find that, I, yeah, of course, I like John Jewell's work too, and I find that very illuminating. And of course, uh, since I'm so concerned for um, Christians taking the Old Testament more seriously, I think it's great to see that you just, you there's no sense-making apparatus for what happened to Jesus, apart from something like Isaiah to do it. So, um, but of course, the danger is always um, getting so exuberant about the uh, Christian exegesis part that we can forget it in its own time. So if you don't mind, why don't we spend some time now on Isaiah in his own context, um, long before the actual advent of our Lord Jesus. How does that sound? Very good. Yep, let's do it. Okay, so I was um, intrigued to discover that it was probably the recognition that there is more than one time period being covered in Isaiah that sort of gave rise to the whole historical critical method. Yes, I I think that's right. Uh, I think it's almost even even conservative evangelical scholarship today. Well, Witherington is a representative of that tradition. Now, uh, frankly, acknowledges that the book of Isaiah that we have 
is a intertextual stream of tradition originating in the Judean prophet Isaiah, the historical Isaiah, and then 140 years later, a second Isaiah uh, who, who uh, prophesied in the midst of the Babylonian exile, and then a third section of Isaiah, which is continues this trajectory started with the historical Isaiah the prophet uh, into the return to devastated Jerusalem after the exile had from Babylon had ended, the third Isaiah. Right. And, uh, you know, I think when you approach this kind of naively, it seems kind of shocking, like everything should be just under the title Isaiah. (laughs) But if we actually think about how we know streams of tradition work, it actually makes perfect sense. I mean, like, for example, just to give a really obvious one, you know, you and I are Lutheran theologians. So like, we're not Luther, but we use that appellation to describe the kind of work that we do. We come from the stream. There are Thomist theologians. um, And, you know, lots of parallels could be extended there. So, you know, thinking in a stream of tradition makes perfect sense. It's what what human beings do. So it, it seems quite sensible that the fact that we even have, uh, so chapters 1 to 39 are generally considered to be the product of this first historical Isaiah in, in Judah in the 700s, that the fact that we have them means that somebody held on to them, wrote them down, and kept having them copied and passed on generation to generation. So there is just the sheer fact that the text exists is testimony to the fact that there is a community that values this stuff and is using it, and then so presumably would have taken it into exile with them into Babylon, and once there, used what they had inherited to try to make sense of their new situation. And that's the the roughly 40 to 55 is the second Isaiah. And then you can see the process would quite possibly happen again on return from exile. And though apparently there's not total agreement on this, it seems likely that 56 to 66 are back home in Jerusalem and coping with the new situation post-exile. Exactly. You know, and you could add to that reflection, Sarah, uh, something that we literate people in the 21st century century take for granted uh, with book publishing and the availability of books and so forth. But this was really still something quite phenomenal at the his time of the first Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, uh, to have something committed to writing. And an elementary reflection here is that once you commit, once an author commits words to writing, you and I both know what this I'm getting at here, the <laughs> author loses control over what people do with the text. The text becomes available to others who may appropriate it smartly or stupidly, justly or unjustly, charitably or maliciously, right? (laughs) The text now has an objectivity to it that transcends my intentions, uh, finite that they are, as an author. And scripture, therefore, especially a sacred scripture, has from the get-go a plentitude of meaning, a meaning that includes but also immediately transcends the historical attentions of its writer-author. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's something that I feel is being appreciated afresh in biblical scholarship is that there is not a single fixity of meaning. There are certainly things that a scripture text can't mean, and there's 
probably a larger, much larger body of those things. But there isn't only one restricted thing that it, it can and does and absolutely must mean. By definition, it's it's generative. And um, it seems that, you know, the the people in the Isaiah tradition, as well as certainly the New Testament authors, seem to have had, and I, th- I think this is where it's um, a, maybe a challenge to a more rigid thinking, they seem to be so confident that this is the word of the Lord, that they can um, engage with it and do stuff with it that isn't rigid replication, but active application and um turning and using in fresh kind of ways, um, which you see actually playing out within the the scriptural text itself. Um, I think that's quite inspiring, actually, that the Bible itself does not suggest a one equals one kind of reading of every single verse, but uh, one gives rise to a multitude. Right. And, and, you know, uh, that's kind of by negative of what the negative of what you said points to why historical criticism has so often come to a dead end. Because if the only legitimate meaning of the text is what it meant once upon a time in ancient history, and that is the literal sense and that's the exclusive sense of the text, then even if you succeed, which is easier said than done, even if you succeed in establishing the historical literal sense, you've and by the same token, uh, relegated the text to that ancient period, and it can't get out of it. You right. found it in the 7th century before Christ, and you've got it stuck there, and you can't do anything else with it. And then this is kind of the game that a lot of historical critical scholars play, I think, a very destructive game, because they hide behind historical research and say, well, I can't comment on anything, this is what Isaiah meant 700 years before Christ. And then the audience who hears this is very frustrated and said, well, you're knowledgeable in all this. What would you say that it means today? And then the historical, critical, biblical scholar gets to opinionate Mm. without any concern for hermeneutics, for fidelity, for um, uh, metaphysics, for any of the traditional Uh, concerns of systematic theology. So you have historical critics who reduce the text to an artifact of ancient history, which cannot speak to us in any way, and then on the basis of their expert knowledge of that ancient artifact, get get a free free ride to opinionate and say whatever the heck they please. (laughs) And we had somebody write in to ask us what we thought of biblical theology with a capital B and a capital T, like, uh, I guess, the the effort of uh, biblical scholars to construct a theological system out of it. And I think you've just answered what you think of that. Well, you know, in a popular sense of the word, I would like to say my theology is biblical. Well, I actually I actually wrote back and said it's called systematic theology actually. <laughs> right. Right. But the idea that you can it falls to pieces because historical critical knowledge is always knowledge of something in its own particularity. And the more precisely you identify something in its historical particularity, the more you sever its canonical connections with everything else in the Bible. Because they're all particular texts relegated to their own context. And there's no way to put Humpty Dumpty back together again to let them speak in the, in the harmony of the whole scripture. 
I mean, not unless you're willing to actually take the theological move and say this is this is holy scripture and that there is something, the surplus of meaning that rises out of it, not its purely restricted historical reference. Well, the better the better way to look at it, isn't it, is to say, does your reading account for all the evidence? And all, the evidence includes this phenomenon in canonical stricture, scripture, which we call today intertextuality. The fact that all the scriptural writers from the very beginning are embedded in a process of tradition, and they live and breathe and think and imagine in the matrix of the scriptures that they've received and then appropriate and then uh, reapply and pass on to a new generation. That's intertextuality, which I think we'll be getting at when we turn to how Isaiah is used in the New Testament. Yeah. All right, then. Well, why don't we spend some direct time now with some passages from Isaiah then in in all three Isaiahs, perhaps. Um, Is there any place you would particularly like to start? Well, tell us first uh, who the the first historical Isaiah was, a little bit about him, and then we'll look at some texts. Okay, so like I said, first Isaiah is is the nickname for chapters 1 through 39. So he lived in uh, Judea, the southern kingdom. At this point, the northern kingdom had already been attacked and destroyed by Assyria. You need a little refresher there on Old Testament history, you know, after Solomon, the kingdoms divided. um, And in the, I don't know, was it 720s or something? The uh, the Assyrians came and basically wiped out. That's where all the myths about the 10 lost tribes of Israel come from. And uh, it eventually became in the New Testament what we call Samaria, this kind of mixed race, mixed religion area. So basically, down in the south, um, Isaiah is one of the prophets around the, the court of Judah. And um, it, it's it's interesting. So uh, Ben Witherington, who we've mentioned, he he proposes. Uh, I don't know if this is unique to him, but it, he suggests that um, the fact that Isaiah's call story doesn't happen until chapter six may suggest that Isaiah started out as kind of a mainstream court prophet who was, you know, as there there was a, a, a good business back then and telling power what it wanted to hear. Well, I guess that's still a pretty good po- business now, <laughs> and that may be the the. Isaiah's call and his, you know, mysterium tremendum at seeing the Lord in the throne and the smoke and the seraphim and everything and then saying, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips who come from a people of unclean lips and having to be purified. That's a unique prophetic call. It might suggest he was pulled out of this mass of yes men to start saying the word of the Lord more directly. And he spoke, he had a a fairly long career. He spoke to several kings of Judah. Uh, He's also mentioned to be married to the prophetess. Uh, we don't have a name, and we don't know if that means wife of prophet or um, uh, prophet in her own right, a speaker of God's word in her own right. Um, Witherington supposes it's the latter. So if we if we want to nail down like the specific historical reference of 1 through 39, it's don't trust in Egypt or other military solutions to keep you safe from Assyria. The Lord alone will protect Judah from Assyria's attack. Right. And actually, we have to locate Isaiah a little bit earlier because the first crisis Isaiah is prophesying to is the alliance of Damascus and the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the Syro-Ephraimite alliance, which has decided to force Judah into this alliance to resist Assyria, and they're going to make war against uh, Judah and depose uh, its Davidic king and 
put somebody else on the throne. And this is where uh, Isaiah's uh, prophecy uh, begins. And, and in fact, his prophecy was uh, validated to that extent that Assyria came and, and destroyed both Damascus, Syria, and, um, and the northern kingdom. And then a little bit later, the historical Isaiah is worried about Judah uh, trying to um, negotiate with Egypt uh, a military alliance to protect it from, from Assyrian aggression. And Isaiah's constant message in all this is, you're not supposed to be a king like all the other kings, playing politics, doing alliances, uh, trusting in the chariot and the sword. You're supposed to be the kings who trust in, in the Lord who fights for us, hearkening back to ancient Israel's a theology of the divine warrior. And very interesting, this is how the prophets use that tradition against the military uh, and political machinations, uh, even of the Davidic uh, kings, Hezekiah and so forth. I would like to point out as well that just like Amos and Hosea, who we talked about in an earlier podcast on the wrath of God, Isaiah very much stands in this a prophetic tradition of speaking truth to power, whether that took place after his call in chapter 6 or not, or if the oracles are in the correct chronological order is a, a difficult exegetical question. But here, let me just, I want to read one passage that sounds like it came, came, comes right out of Amos. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity, your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not ha listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek just, justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. But your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan, and the widow's cause does not come before them. Ah, I will pour out my wrath on my enemies." and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. Boy, that sounds just like Amos, doesn't it? That's from Isaiah chapter chapter 1. Yeah, ouch, rough beginning. <laughs> yeah, what a way to bring the readers into your book, huh? <laughs> well, it gets better. <laughs> yes, because he, then he immediately goes on to talk about um, redemption. Z Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. All nations shall stream to renewed Zion. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So the, after judgment comes the word of renewal, pardon, renewal, 
and hope. Yeah, though interestingly, I, I learned that the the um, swords into plowshares is actually not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. It's become more important recently, probably in light of 20th century history, but it wasn't a major thing for the New Testament writers. But it's true throughout the whole of, of First Isaiah. There are a lot of oracles against the nation, certainly against um, Israel and Judah, but also against all the other surrounding nations as well. Huge warnings against their, their the blood on their hands. Another kind of parable that First Isaiah tells that becomes very important in the New Testament is the parable of the unfruitful vineyard. Right, right. A motif that Jesus takes up in several stories. Uh, chapter 5, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then some verses later, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. So that very uh, pregnant uh, uh, parable of the vineyard then becomes a, a tool in the hands of Jesus who used it in a variety of contexts. The historical Isaiah judges Judah so harshly and also the northern kingdom Israel because they were, their calling was to be this fruitful vineyard of the Lord, to be light to the nations, a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And instead, uh, they had become just one petty kingdom alongside all the other kingdoms of the ancient Near East competing in the same political games of power and glory. Well, that's a message that I'll still preach. Right. <laughs> uh, you who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Ah, you who are wise in your own eyes and shrewd in your own sight. Ah, you who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant <laughs> at mixing drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their rights. So this is the indictment of Judah Israel that's gone far astray from the Lord's sovereign purposes in uh, calling them to be his special people. Yeah, I suppose then the big contrast with Amos, who does not envision any gospel hope at the end, is that Isaiah is threaded throughout with promises of restoration and restoration beyond what I would say uh, repentance only can possibly do. If I can uh, jump forward a bit here to chapter 25, um, there is, it starts with uh, words of praise to God for all the things that he has done to restore um, and, you know, take care of the needy and the poor and those in distress and so forth. And then it goes on to say, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
this is quite striking. It's kind of a trope out there that the Old Testament really didn't know anything about everlasting life or the possibility of, of resurrection. And um, this is interesting evidence that, the um, let's say, uh, an eschatological and apocalyptic solution far beyond the um, concerns of Judah's political machinations is also a part of the message that Isaiah is declaring. Yes, you, you're beginning to see several developments theologically in the book of Isaiah. One is a move towards a more radical monotheism. That's especially pronounced in the second Isaiah. I am the Lord, there is none like me. I create weal, I create woe, I create light, I create darkness. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. This idea that God is uniquely uh, the creator of all that is not God. That's one belief of Israel that's becoming increasingly clear. And then the other is this uh, corresponding belief that in contrast to the creator of all, we are creatures, all flesh is grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We are flesh, we are mortal, we are uh, perishable. We will die, and this is the veil, the shroud that covers the nations, is the pall of death. Uh, but the God who is one true creator of all that is not God can also recreate the dead, uh, overcome the death sentence that uh, hangs over all the nations. And this connects, I think, Sarah, very deeply with the historical Isaiah's message of faith, in the sense of trusting God and not behaving like a ordinary political regime with alliances and military schemes and so forth. In fact, the passage that you just read continues, it will be said on that day, lo, lo, this is our God, we have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So corresponding with the increasingly clarified view in the uniqueness of God as the creator of all that is not God is the increasingly clarified notion that what faith means is this patient waiting, waiting on God to perform the promised uh, salvation that God alone can finally deliver the salvation from uh, sin and death. Right. So words about God's existence or power or goodness are not, um, they're not abstract statements that you assent to or dissent from, but in fact, they are materially connected to your situation on the ground. Say, if you're living in Judah and Assyria is threatening to siege Jerusalem, there, there's a, an absolute direct line there between something as grand as the eschatological restoration of all flesh beyond death and what you immediately decide to do in the face of a crisis, uh, whether or not you are actually on the ground trusting in God. That's right. It, the faith in the resurrection is not otherworldly uh, pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. It's a way of life for living now. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, when, when you give a, a feast, invite those who cannot repay you, and so you will be rewarded in the resurrection of the righteous. So it's a way of living now, of living uh, with, with uh, 
uncompromised generosity, particularly for the widow and the orphan, the poor and the oppressed, and so forth. It's living with that kind of open generosity, which is a lifestyle of trust, and the trust is trust specifically in the resurrection, as the, uh, as in Luke's language, the reward of living by faith. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where you get to the the deep connection between faith and works, not in the, you know, unfortunate, you know, um, merit reward kind of system that sometimes I think as Lutherans, we spend a little too much obsessive time on, though it's certainly an ongoing problem. But in the simple sense of, uh, if you want to know what you believe, then look at what you do. (laughs) And if you are acting in such a way that demonstrates that you actually believe that there is a God who loves you and who will make all things right after your death, then you act in a certain way. I mean, I think for a lot of us believers also, it exposes to us how little we believe. Um, <laughs> and But that that's also a kind of salutary revelation, but it's not kind of a, you know, you, you can compartmentalize what you think you believe or think you think versus from how you actually um, put your feet on the ground and what comes out of that. And I think it's it's very simply said, you this the way you live is you refrain from taking justice into your own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Paul cites that text uh, when he says, uh, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Part of the patient waiting is not to take justice into your own hands, not to be your own judge in your own case, but to trust in uh, God's final vindication. That can be very hard to do, particularly when you've been unjustly treated. So that's that's the one thing. Uh, refrain from taking revenge, taking justice into your own hand. The other thing is this generosity. When you give a feast, invite those who cannot repay. Yeah, I think that's why, of course, we would say you need to hear the living word of God addressed to you constantly because there's absolutely no way you will be able to walk in this way and and live out anything like trust and hope in God unless the word of, of grace and God's intended restoration and love is brought to bear on your life constantly, constantly. Yes. Amen. All right. All right, well, let's take a look at one more passage from First Isaiah before we move on to the rest of the book. Um, one of the most famous probably is from uh, chapter 7, verse 14, in which it says, usually in English, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And this is like a really popular one for especially pundits to jump all over and say, well, in the original Hebrew, it doesn't mean an actual virgin. It means just a young woman, um, ignoring the very likely social context that a young woman's virginity would be very carefully guarded until she could be safely married. But whatever, it's meant to kind of counteract the metaphysics of the virgin birth. And um, and I, I think you have some thoughts about this, Dad. What do you want to say? Well, it's, a, it's a, such a dumb argument because the Greek translation with the word in Greek parthenos, which is virgin, uh, was not done by Christians. It was done by pre-Christian Jews, the, the Greek translation of Isaiah 714. So the fact that the Christians found the Septuagint translation as virgin uh, does not mean that they were cooking the books. This is what they actually (laughs) found, that uh, 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 pre-Christian Jews had so translated the Hebrew word Alma. 
Yeah, let me just interject a quick comment there on translation, because this is actually really relevant. So you mentioned the Septuagint. So that means the Jewish translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And what's interesting to note is that there were probably multiple translations that were uh, converging by the first century after Christ into a standardized Greek translation. But it seems that most New Testament writers, um, they may have known both the Hebrew and the Greek version, but they very often sided with the Greek over against the Hebrew. There's a few cases where they side with the Hebrew over against the Greek, if there's, if, I mean, if there's any disagreement um, be- between them. And sometimes it seems like they might even be offering their own direct translation from Hebrew, in- Hebrew into Greek, which isn't, isn't either. So um, it, it raises the interesting question. I think um, um, Jensen talked about this at time is what actually is the canonical Old Testament for Christians. Is it the Hebrew, which we only have from much later texts, though it probably re- reflects a pretty ancient tradition, or is actually the Septuagint, more properly speaking, the uh, the uh, holy holy text? I, I personally don't think it would be wise to choose. But anyway, a readers should be, or listeners should be aware that in the New Testament milieu, people uh, probably to some extent knew both translation translations could many of the writers could function in both languages you know probably one better than the other but that's part of what's what's at, at stake here yeah and i think the uh, it's this whole scheme we talked about at the beginning of the podcast between prediction and proof uh, through fulfillment that gets in our way here from understanding uh, some very valuable things here it's the Gospel of Matthew that cites Isaiah 7:14 um, and uses this text in talking about the uh, nativity of Jesus. So what is Matthew up to? I think, for one thing, it's clear in Isaiah 7 that the context is the prophet Isaiah going to King, is it Hezekiah, right? King Hezekiah? And who is tempted in this threat from Syria and uh, the northern Israel kingdom, Ephraim, Aram of Damascus and uh, Ephraim uh, of Syria, that they're coming against Jerusalem. And Isaiah, no, it's to Ahaz. It goes to Ahaz and says, "Ask ask a sign of the Lord your God. And Ahaz all too piously uh, says, oh, far far be it from me to put the Lord to the test. (laughs) And Isaiah rebukes him. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? So that little interchange means that uh, King Ahaz makes a pious dodge to avoid consulting with the Lord through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't buy the dodge and says, look it, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here comes the famous text. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. And before the child knows how to refuse good and choose evil, The land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring on you and your people and on your ancestral house such days that have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah 
the king and the king of Assyria. So what historical Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz is here's the sign. A young woman is going to have a baby very soon, and the baby's going to be named the Lord is with us. That's an assurance, a promise that Judah and Jerusalem will be protected from these machinations of Samaria and Syria trying to forge an alliance and bring Judah into it against the Assyrian invasion. Uh, So clearly, historical Isaiah is talking about a birth that's occurring in in the near future, imminently. And it probably, as some scholars have suggested, refers to his own prophetess wife's own child in any case. So that's the historical meaning of the text in Isaiah 7. And when Matthew uh, appropriates it, what then can he possibly be meaning with this? Well, we have to keep reading in Isaiah because there's all sorts of intertextual clues, right? And you have to really come on over to chapter chapters 9 and 11 to get what Matthew and perhaps Isaiah himself would have associated with this sign child, this promised sign child, Emmanuel. A child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and his name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, his authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom, and he will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward and evermore. And then in chapter 11, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, and so forth. So Matthew is associating this sign child, this promised sign child, with these uh, uh, incipient messianic prophecies of a new David who will fulfill all the ancient promises made to the line of David which are being uh, uh, broken and destroyed by the infidelity and fecklessness of the historical descendants of David sitting upon the throne in uh, Jerusalem. And so you can say that from, from Matthew, this invocation of the book of Isaiah is meant to underscore uh, two things. That here in the birth of Jesus, The Lord's long-standing promises to the line of David are finally truly being fulfilled uh, in the gift of a a genuine uh, Messiah whose reign will bring to completion all that was begun and then aborted in the historical line descending from David. Therefore, what is the virgin birth really all about? It's really about the Jewishness of Jesus the fact that Jesus is quite deliberately born a Jew, a child, a son, a descendant of David, an heir of those messianic promises. 
Yeah, and I think what you see in connecting chapter seven to the what you quoted from nine and eleven is demonstrably there's no one in historical Isaiah's setting who fulfills the requirements of those verses. So there, as we talk about the surplus of meaning, there's a promise, but there is not a an immediate payoff in Isaiah's own time that can be the case. And then I think if you take it into Christian interpretation, you can say both for Christians, Jesus is the fulfillment of it, but in in a sufficiently ambiguous way to leave room for Jewish unbelief over the claim that Jesus is the person who fulfilled those things. Let alone that he was born of a virgin, yeah. Yeah, right. But I think that actually makes a good segue now into um, Second Isaiah. Mindful of the time, what I'd, I'd like to do is look at two passages in Second Isaiah and then one in um, Third Isaiah to, to wrap up. And the relevance here, I'm going to jump right ahead to 52 and 53, is um, this, of course, is the, the really famous suffering servant. He was wounded for our transgressions and um, nothing beautiful about him that we should desire him, those extremely famous words. And the setting of Second Isaiah is, as we've said, in exile. So um, First Isaiah ends with this um, a very annoying, though comical, story of uh, Hezekiah and the miraculous salvation from the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, and they go home and everything's great. And then a, an envoy comes from Babylon, and idiot Hezekiah shows them all of the wealth <laughs> of Jerusalem. And Isaiah says, what have you done? Ugh, they're gonna, it's going to come back to haunt us. And, and selfish old man Hezekiah says, well, it'll be after I'm dead, so who cares? Uh, so that kind of sets <laughs> you up for uh, for the next 15 chapters that are going to be within the, the exilic experience in Babylon. And so... Um, what I what I found striking here, and this is something I, again I got from Witherington, is that this tremendous story of fifty two and fifty three is uh, fits so poorly with anything within the horizon of Israel so far. It, it even within purely uh, the historical and Jewish context, there's something about it so startling, so unassimilable, and there's nothing within the again the historic experience of of Judah and exile either that can possibly fit with what's being described there. So it's definitely meant as a prophetic text, not in again we said in the very rigid, you know, fulfillment, you know, exactly, you know, 587 years from now, the messianic child will be born or whatever but what is what is imagined and and set forth through these words of the suffering servants stand as kind of a surd that um has to be uh, i don't know just kind of um walked around but not directly approached you know it's this is a very fascinating passage for a number of reasons first of all the title servant of the lord uh, this is a title that was originally given to Moses at the end of the book of Joshua. It's awarded to Joshua. And then it becomes a little bit more diffuse. There can be various servants of the Lord in this way or that. But here in Second Isaiah, it becomes a specific title, uh, servant of the Lord. Uh, so it's, it's designating as a title, it's designating an office. It's not um, just an ordinary description, but it's an official title, servant of the Lord. And there's other, as you were in our haste here, we're kind of skipping through some things here, but there's a number of these servant oracles. Uh, and there's probably a difference between the servant oracles up to chapter 49 and then the servant 
oracles in 52 and 53. And what's the difference? By the time we get to 52, the servant of the Lord has met rejection and his ministry seems to be a failure. And in fact, he's suffering persecution and rejection, perhaps even being killed. So there's a, a definite divide between the uh, uh, optimism and enthusiasm of the earlier servant oracles and the sobriety and darkness of the ones in chapters 52 and 53. Yeah, so you can see exactly why a, an apostolic band in crisis over interpreting what had happened to their beloved Lord in his crucifixion, why this would be so important to them. I think you can even go a little bit further than that, Sarah. Uh, years ago, I read a very impressive argument by the German New Testament scholar Peter Stolmacher, who uh, took over the chair in New Testament from Ernst Käsemann. I think Stolmacher's retired by now. But Stolmacher made a very powerful argument, and I, I'm not going to get into the thick and details of it here, but that the words, what we call the words of institution, the statements Jesus makes about the um, significance of his impending death uh, in the words that found or establish the uh, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, that these words are based upon Jesus' own appropriation of Isaiah uh, chapter 52 to 53. Wow. And he makes, the, yeah, he makes the argument that Jesus uses these verses to interpret his suffering and death that he sees about to fall upon him. Now, that's a his, historical reconstruction of the mind of Jesus. Uh, and I, I don't always invest a lot in those kinds of arguments. But it seems to me quite plausible in the spirit of intertextuality that if indeed Jesus lived and breathed in the matrix of Israel scriptures, and as he approached Jerusalem, and uh, as his confrontation with the temple authorities there grew intense, and he could palpably foresee that he was about to be uh, rejected and betrayed and, and killed and so forth, what would a pious Jew immersed in the scriptures have done but to seize upon Isaiah 52 and 53, just as the cry of dereliction on the cross seizes upon Psalm 22? Yeah, and in fact, I mean, if uh, we take the story in, in Luke 4, I think, where uh, Jesus is in the synagogue, we know it sort of struck me for the f first time that Jesus was literate and literate in Hebrew. He no doubt learned to read from the scriptures. And so when he's, as Luke reports, when he is in the synagogue and, you know, invited to, to come read, he's given the Isaiah scroll and he goes directly to the passage he wants, which in this case, um, in the story is Isaiah 61, which is the other one I wanted to get to. But that means that I, Jesus clearly was well acquainted with Isaiah and knew how to read it and was shaped by it. As we've mentioned before, we can't assume how well 
the general populace, I mean, they certainly were not overly literate, but even how familiar they necessarily were with these passages. So this suggests that Jesus was deeply immersed in at least Isaiah and certainly um, in the Torah as well. And, you know, it, it stands to reason that a lot of the apostolic interpretation of Jesus was formed first by Jesus' own selection from Isaiah and other Old Testament documents, his reading, interpretation, application to himself, which then was later extended. Of course, I, I, like you, I don't want to overinvest in the exact trajectory of how that happened, but it seems it seems certainly plausible to me that ap- apostolic use of Isaiah is formed first by Jesus' use of Isaiah. And that, you know, one of the other books I read in preparation for this episode was one of the last great books by the really significant scholar Brever Childs called The Struggle to Understand Isaiah as Christian Scripture which is a kind of a a massive survey of all the way from the New Testament to the earliest church fathers to the postmodern attempts to read Isaiah. Uh, He's very critical of Walter Brueggemann in this book, and uh, I don't quite agree with that criticism. I've learned a lot from Brueggemann, but that's besides the point. The point here is that Childs uh, said it's true that from the earliest battles against Gnosticism, Christianity preserved the scriptures of Israel as its own Old Testament and realized that these scriptures had first to be read literally. And then somehow out of their literal reading, a spiritual interpretation that comports with the Christian message becomes possible, right? Uh, But he points out that there's no unanimity at all through the centuries on what this literal hyphen spiritual spectrum of possibilities actually is. So maybe that's how we could kind of bring this discussion of Isaiah to a conclusion. How do we faithfully preach prophetic texts today both respecting their original or literal historical meaning uh, on the one side, but also reading them um, in Christian perspective as a word of God for us today. Yeah, so I mentioned at the beginning of our recording that I had kind of two problems with Isaiah and that I would mention the second one at the end. So that's what I'm going to do now. I realized that I didn't like Isaiah and the prophets because I had heard so much bad preaching on them. Not by you, Dad. I don't remember almost anything you preached when I was a kid, but I'm sure it was all excellent. But um, <laughs> the there's so like... Behold, I am doing a new thing. <laughs> this is a, a a great and wonderful text of Isaiah, and I have heard it used so badly and shoddily and cheaply. You know, it's like, behold, I am doing a new thing. Therefore, we're going to build a new education wing on the church, or therefore, we're going to take up this new social ministry, or therefore, whatever. It's It always seems to be basically the imprimatur on the, the preacher's fad du jour. Um, and I just realized, 
realized I, I, I was wary of prophetic texts because of, as I mentioned before, just this kind of, it's cool to be a prophet and speak truth to power and see what the future is and lead people boldly into it. And I just never trust it. But then in reading, especially Witherington's study, one thing that he brings out really strongly, and it really forced me to wrestle with this, is that, again, the New Testament writers approach Isaiah as so absolutely confidently it is the word, the living word of God, that they engage it and use it in lots of different ways, not only intertextually, but in ways that you know, arguably are not really what was intended by the text at all. Paul in particular seems to do this. Um, and of course, you know, because for me, they're both canonical. So that means both the the Isaiah in his own right is canonical, but then Paul's highly creative use of Isaiah is also canonical. And so there's a certain sense in which there is a freedom embodied within the text of scripture itself to use the, the scriptural text freely in order to speak to the time. But I realize I've just become so wary of that. And I'm trying to figure out in my own preaching, like, I don't actually have a clear sense anymore. This is what education will do to you folks is how to, how to preach the prophetic word now in a way that isn't just either my, my fear or my hope or my pet project or, you know, telling the people what they want to hear, or telling the people what they don't want to hear. Or telling the people what I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So, Right. And so I clearly can't do just, you know, like purely, you know, historical information sermons. Um, but how, how do you bring the, the living word of God to bear? And of course, and I'm also, you know, I'm not an apostle. I'm a lowly preacher. So I don't have the kind of license that Paul does. But um, if that process is embodied in the scripture, it's somehow also commended to our use. Yeah, very good, Sarah. I think I can say a couple of things to that overall thing. First of all, the freedom to use the Old Testament scripture homiletically or in, uh, for preaching. There are wonderful and powerful turns of phrase and ideas uh, in the Bible, and they really ought to saturate our speech. When I think of, for example, the great orations of Martin Luther King Jr. or a century before of uh, Abraham Lincoln, if you don't understand how they're reading the Bible and homiletically uh, redeploying scriptural language, you don't understand what they're saying at all. Uh, and I think preachers ought to be so immersed in the matrix of the scripture that scriptural language, uh, without a lot of you know pious, inauthentic pious phoniness, but as it's apt and appropriate, uh, ought to come smoothly off of our tongues, homiletically. That's number one. Number two, the prophetic texts are the living word of God because the New Testament gospel is impossible without them. If there is no prophetic critique of injustice and sin, there is no controversy of the Lord with his creation, and there is no need for reconciliation uh, through the costly way of Christ's death and resurrection. So there's obviously a segue every time you preach the gospel to uh, read backwards into the prophetic message of God's judgment and pardon and renewal and hope. that That's obvious. Uh, thirdly, I think a lot of preaching 
feels, unless it's immediately an existential payoff, it doesn't preach. I think this is a disastrous assumption. People are hungering and thirsting for knowledge, and to use the sermon also as a time to educate. I mean, to really get into the text and spend some time saying, like we did on this podcast today about uh, the first Isaiah and his message about the hypocrisy of worship in Jerusalem at the time, uh, to the neglect of the orphan and the widow and so forth. Uh, these are deep, rich themes uh, in the prophets, and they are as relevant today as they ever were. And you can use your sermon time to teach some of this stuff so people know what is the indispensable background to the proclamation of the gospel. Those are several things I would say. Yeah, I, I often try to say that um, Christians have a, a double history. They have the history of whatever line or multiple lines of people they themselves, you know, genetically and culturally come from. But they also have a history they've been grafted into of Israel. And it's important to to know, like you said, simply to be educated about the context of those stories, um, because it has become your history too, and that itself has a an, an existential payoff, like you like you said. Well, and, and as we we said earlier, you know, there's there's always a connection between the big metaphysical and eschatological themes and what you actually do with your body and words in daily life. They're not they're not somehow irrelevant because they're not talking about this proposed policy change or that particular um, expense or whatever. Well, I think that's disastrous in general when you try to try to make the sermon speak to some immediate question of politics. That's not your calling. Including congregational uh, politics or decision making. That's that's I think because if, as the preacher, you're the only one talking. That's a that's not the right place to, to use that privilege. When you're the only one talking, when you're the only one talking, it doggone well better be the word of the Lord and not your personal hobby horse. <laughs> well said. That sounds like the place to end. Well, very relevantly, we are um, going to continue the theme of podcast as a therapy for Sarah, because in our next episode, we will be talking about what is exactly the job of the pastor. for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.